This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. If you or a loved one is struggling with drug or alcohol addiction and are serious about getting help, call us now at 855-820-2797. You can get clean and sober in as little as seven days. Your insurance company may cover 100% of all costs with little to no out-of-pocket expenses. Our trained addiction specialists are available 24-7 and all calls are free and confidential. Just call us at 855-820-2797. How much longer are you going to suffer with addiction? Let us find you the best treatment center that fits your unique needs. Call us now at 855-820-2797. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. The year is 1920. The United States of America was on the brink of becoming something radically different than its founding. In fact, the transition was well underway, thanks to the racist Woodrow Wilson. From 1791, when the Bill of Rights was ratified, until around 1900, the nation was a constitutional democratic republic. It was unparalleled in human history. For the very first time ever, a nation had an actual balance of power between three branches of government so that no one man could undermine the liberty that Americans cherished. Then came this tidal wave of progressivism, a philosophy very much similar to Marxism. All of the influences from Germany and the University of Berlin were starting to come into the United States. And it all happened without a call to arms. The idea was that progress would come slowly but steadily until the principles championed by Marx and Engels became ingrained in society. This progressive idea, or as I like to call it, disease, actually started with the Republicans, Theodore Roosevelt. Initially, he was a trusted, fairly conservative Republican who had been poisoned with this philosophy, as had European-influenced Woodrow Wilson. The eight years that Wilson served as president, whether Americans really knew it or not, had brought the nation to the brink of crisis and fundamental change in the way America was governed. By 1920, the balance of power was really no longer there. Too much power was in the hands of the president and a huge, oppressive government. Marxist economic principles and war accomplished much of what Wilson had set out to do. So, the year 1920, the nation had a clear, stark choice. Continue on this progressive path or return to the balance of power and constitutional principles. Now, even though progressivism had infiltrated both the Democratic and Republican parties, there were two men in the GOP who didn't appreciate the direction in which the country was headed. One was a U.S. senator. His name was Warren G. Harding. And the other was the rising star in the party from Massachusetts, the governor, Calvin Coolidge, who had just taken on the AFL and the powerful president of the AFL, Samuel Gompers, and won. Author and historian David Petruza sets the scene leading to the 1920 GOP National Convention. A taking a strong stand against organized labor even then will crush and ruin and end his political career. He writes back to Gompers that no one has any right to strike against the public safety anytime, anyplace, anywhere. And these words resonate with the American public and cause a boomlet, a favorite son candidacy, of his for his presidency 
Coolidge didn't receive the nomination, but the delegates refused to let the elites keep him completely off the ticket. He is not nominated in 1920, but something very remarkable happens at that convention. It's supposedly a boss-run convention, but the delegates stampede and nominate him for the vice presidency. And when Warren Harding dies in August 1923, Calvin Coolidge, who has spent a life preparing for higher and higher public office without lusting after it, of waiting for the American people or the people of Massachusetts to turn to him when they are ready and he is ready, he becomes president of the United States. Senator Harding won the nomination, and he and Coolidge won the general in the largest landslide in a contested election up until that time in all of American history. Harding Coolidge took just over 60% of the popular vote and swept to victory with a 404-127 electoral votes over the Democratic ticket. The nation had resoundingly rejected the further erosion of constitutional principles, and the two men were thrust into office, and they were about to face a massive crisis that they had inherited from the Wilson administration. The United States had lost over 53,000 men in World War I, and the economy was in ruins. Amity Schles explains what it was like for the veterans that Coolidge welcomed home to Massachusetts as their governor. I want to imagine a governor of a state that has a coast. That's Massachusetts. So the ships come back with the men. The ships go out with the men. The men who come back are missing one leg. About one-third of them have some kind of problem. Some have dire problems. And in this period... There were no antibiotics. So if your leg was rotting, it continued to rot. You might have a rotting leg your entire life. And the only question would be, when is that leg amputated? So these men come back very angry. They come back from World War I very angry. We've won, but it cost us a lot debt, unprecedented debt for the United States. And a lot of them are hurt and a lot of them don't have jobs. The interaction with troops returning from the Great War helped solidify Coolidge's anti-war sentiments. It's Coolidge's job as governor of the state to receive them, actually to go out in a boat in Boston Harbor and say, welcome to Massachusetts, dear troops who are coming home. And he saw they had lice and wounds and might never recover totally. So, you know, anyone who saw World War I up close was grossed out by war forever. And Coolidge did see it up close. In addition to the shock of returning troops, the nation was developing other serious problems. The inflation rate in 1919 was well over 20%. Then deflation kicked in. Prices dropped by 18% for retail and down by 36.8% wholesale, more than any single year during the Great Depression. In fact, the Great Depression isn't so great. This was a greater and deeper depression. Three million American troops returned home from war and they were all looking for work. And the unemployment rate skyrocketed to 11.7%. It's not just me saying that this was worse. Many economists maintain that all of the conditions existed for the 1920 Depression to be far, far worse than the Great Depression that began in 1929. The difference was Coolidge and Harding. The policies of those two is what saved the country. The first thing they did was cut spending from $18.5 billion 
to $6.4 billion. That was a 65% cut in the federal budget. Can you imagine 65% in a year? Just to remind you, in today's environment, it has proven impossible to cut spending by 1%. The next fiscal year, 1922, they cut spending again to $3.3 billion. <laughs> That's a 50% cut the next year. Next, they cut taxes to free up more money for Americans to spend and spark the economy. The highest tax rate was slashed from 73% to 24%. And to spark the economy, it did. By 1923, unemployment plummeted from 11.7 to 2.4. At times during the Wilson administration, unemployment neared 20%. Under Coolidge, the average rate was 3.3. But what came first, let's remember, the cutting of spending. Harding and Vice President Coolidge had taken the nation from a deep depression into the most prosperous decade in American history. And what was the result? Well, Harding and Vice President Coolidge had taken the nation from a deep, deep depression to the most prosperous decade in American history. It's called the Roaring Twenties. Now you know the reason. Even with all that he had done as vice president to help pull the nation out of the depression, it was a very different time in America. His residence as the vice president was actually in the Willard Hotel. And one night, a fire broke out in the local hotel, and it had to be evacuated. When the threat was over, Coolidge headed back inside. But a marshal tried to stop him from returning to his suite. He looked at the officer and said, I'm the vice president. The marshal asked, Vice President of what? To which Coolidge said, the Vice President of the United States. During the hot summer of 1923, President Harding decided to take a massive trip around the country to speak to people. Maybe he should introduce himself. He would travel 15,000 miles all around the nation and was the very first president to ever visit Alaska. But along the way, Harding fell ill, and his doctors assumed that he was just fatigued and had developed a virus. And by the time he arrived in San Francisco, California, he was actually beginning to improve a little. But then on August 2nd, 1923, at 7.30 p.m., President Warren Harding, resting in his bed, suddenly slumped over from a heart attack and was gone. While Harding was traveling around the country, Coolidge had gone to Vermont to visit his family. And unlike the homes that the president stay in today, the Coolidge family had no electricity, nor did they have any phone service. Thus, the vice president of the United States couldn't be reached. So a messenger was dispatched out to the house. It was very late when he arrived, so Coolidge had to be awakened. He dressed, then he went downstairs to greet the throngs of reporters and officials who had by now descended on the house. At 2.47 a.m. in the morning, by the light of a kerosene lamp, a stunned and humbled Calvin Coolidge was sworn in as President of the United States of America. He was sworn in by his father, who was a notary and a justice of the peace. Calvin Coolidge was now the 30th President of the United States. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, his first act of President was to promptly go back to bed. Next time 
a deep look at the Coolidge presidency and how this president, as opposed to Woodrow Wilson, felt about the Klan. Glenn Beck, The Blaze Radio Network. Hey, I want to talk to you a little bit about the trouble that I have sometimes with my son and my daughter. They love the Internet, as I do. The Internet is an incredible resource, educational, social, recreational. It's all good, except it's not all good. Some of it is real bad, and it can show up on your kid's screen when you least expect it. So how do you as a parent handle it? I want to tell you about Hero Parental Control. It's the most comprehensive family Internet solution available, and the activity from all of your family's devices can be filtered, can be monitored, and even tracked via GPS from a dashboard on your phone or your iPad. Material that may be healthy for a teen can be harmful to a young child, and so you need to have the perfect protection level from toddler to teen to mom and dad. One of the most important steps to a safer internet in your home is recognizing this is a really big issue. Hero gives you the power to create a protected and nurturing online environment. There's nothing like it. Try Hero. Block the bad. Choose what's good for your family. Visit BlazeHero.com That's BlazeHero.com Hero.com.